I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, an artist and psychoanalyst based in Sweden who works with people internationally, and this is episode 263 of Rendering Unconscious Podcast. My guest today is Pablo Lerner, a psychologist from Sweden residing in Paris who offers psychoanalytic psychotherapies in private practice. He's here to discuss his new book, Speculating on the Edge of Psychoanalysis, Rings and Voids, published by Rutledge, which is part of Ian Parker's series. He also contributed an essay to my book, Psychoanalytic Perspectives on the Films of Ingmar Bergman, From Freud to Lacan and Beyond, also from Rutledge. For links and more information, visit the main website, renderingunconscious.org. You can also view a video of this discussion at Trapar Films' YouTube page. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T Film at YouTube. Huge thanks to everyone who supports Rendering Unconscious podcast through our Patreon. I do everything at Rendering Unconscious myself. I don't get any outside funding at all. I edit, promote, record, book. I do everything on my own. Thank you to everyone who supports the podcast at our Patreon. There is a $2 level if you'd like to just support the podcast but are not necessarily interested in art or magic. And if you'd like more, you can be at the $5 level where we post exclusive content every week for Magic Mondays, where we discuss our magical and creative practices. There also is a Discord server available to everyone at our Patreon where we chat with our patrons every day. And there's lists for film, music, art, rendering unconscious, and more. So join us at our Patreon and we'll see you there. Thanks. Hi, Pablo. Welcome back to Rendering Unconscious. It's so nice to have you here. Vanessa, I'm very happy to be here again. I'm so excited to talk all about your new book, Speculating on the Edge of Psychoanalysis, Rings and Voids. Yes, me too. <laughs> so where would you like to begin? Well, um, perhaps I could uh, begin by just saying something about uh, about the book in general, uh, proceeding from, from the title, which... Um, Perhaps uh, there's not too many words in it, but some of them perhaps pop up, uh, pop out. Perhaps um, we can begin with speculating, which is a rather peculiar word for a, for a book which, to a large degree, uh, revolves around, which is theoretical in, in a sense. Speculating and a theory, of course, is a complex relation between them, a certain form of tension. But I would say that, that this book indeed is quite speculative. And this owes to um, the fact that some of the phenomena which I dwell upon quite heavily, um, such as mysticism, pantheism, polytheism, uh, intuition, uh, truth and being, creation and poetry, for example, are perhaps in themselves uh, irremediably 
speculative. So this is some kind of almost unavoidable uh, aspect of my endeavor. I am almost obliged to be a bit speculative. It's either that or remaining boring, I suppose, <laughs> and, and treat it, uh, you know, in the, in the boring, theoretical, purely theoretical and rigid way, which is in short not my thing. The second, the second part of, of the title uh, is uh, on the edge. On the edge, and, and this can be understood in, in two different forms. Uh, on the one hand, I speculate as, as about these phenomena which I spoken about, which are phenomena which are quite difficult, <laughs> uh, to be honest, very difficult, and um, it has been difficult uh, for psychoanalysis to, to, psychoanalysis to account for them. And uh, in the big thinkers which we have in our field, uh, we have seen a, a big variety of different ways of, of approaching them, and which, of course, is a form of symptom, uh, which, which, which has to do, I believe, at least with the topics in, topics in question. So, in a sense, I approach these um, speculative topics which are situated on the border of the psychoanalytic continent. You know, we're not standing on uh, necessarily on rigid ground, the ground which Lacan put forward and Freud, for example, which uh, most of us take for granted almost right now. Uh, not at all. I, I try to approach these elements uh, on the edge of psychoanalysis, speculate about them in a way uh, which uh, which proceeds from um, a theoretical matrix, you could argue, which in itself also is on the edge of psychoanalysis, or rather we will speak about this, of course, which uh, uh, almost is a form of displacement of the very outer limit of, of psychoanalysis, where I introduce uh, a new way of thinking about basically phenomena which uh, which are in a sense independent of language and the continent of course of, of Lacanian thought is that which belongs to the symbolic that which is linked to the symbolic that which is determined in relation to the symbolic etc but here I take a step perhaps beyond that which uh, which situates me also uh, you know you know insofar as I think about this proceeding from this uh, on the edge of psychoanalysis so on the one hand I, I speculate about these topics and on the other hand I'm acutely aware of of, uh, of standing on the edge of a precipice <laughs> making uh, my theoretical endeavor something of a, a balancing act I suppose and, and thirdly we have the the subtitles rings and voids which of course are the, the fundamental concept, I suppose, which I rethink um, in my book, um, proceeding for which I approach everything which I just spoke about. And um, primarily, you could say, well, definitely, uh, voids. The book revolves primarily around the question of, of the status of the void. And uh, um, I think this would be uh, perhaps a good place to start, to uh, to, uh, to say something about the purely abstract theory, theoretical uh, matrix of, of, of my book before starting to speak uh, about the phenomena which I approach. And we be, let's begin with the void. <laughs> and and um, of course, Lacan speaks quite a lot about what could be understood, what could be understood in terms of voids. For example, the symbolic, he, he, he of course thinks is a form of structure, um, which most constitutants um, are 
in some sense, uh, or strictly speaking rather, uh, negative elements, purely differential elements, like like the different uh, phonetic elements, and which in itself has no meaning at all, but which uh, so simply serve solely serve as as being different from each other, and different kinds of signifiers and words can of course be uh, created or constituted by combining them and permutating them. So suddenly, by combining different sounds, we had words like cat, <laughs> and we see a cat before it was an abstract cat. And the thing is that that all of these elements in the symbolic are are differential and negative. They have no value in itself. So um, so the value they get is, uh, as it were, determined, over-determined by the place they occupy the structure, by a constant interplay between the signifier and questions all all the other ones, which results in a way, in a dictionary, you could argue almost, where you read what a word means in terms of other words, or for the other part, on the other hand, that you can imagine, for example, an abstract cat when you hear the word cat. So, but but the thing here is that the symbolic is the realm of the negative, purely negative elements. And then, of course, you can ask yourself the question, if, if it reaches some kind of point where you can pin down the signif signification of the different elements, and here, Lacan, with emphasis, says no. Um, meaning that the symbolic in itself is uh, irradicably incomplete. And this incompleteness he thinks of in terms of, in a sixth seminar, as the non-existence of the other of the other, the other of the other being functioning as some kind of Cartesian god, a uh, point of reference which uh, grounds the symbolic as a whole, enabling all the differential elements to, uh, to, to be purely grounded in something stable, you could argue, uh, making possible enabling uh, uh, enunciations um, in speech which are which are true basically in, in the naive sense of the word. Uh, Lacan says no to this. There is no other of the other. So so the the symbolic in itself is um, is in essence lacking, and he speaks of, of this in terms of this leaves a void behind within the symbolic order, and uh, this void he speaks of in different terms in terms of lack. The lack of desire, the lack of the other, responding to the desire of the other, uh, the lack um, in different kinds of splits, for example, wherein the real emerges or erupts in relation to it. But here, here we have a symbolic order uh, which both constitutes are are signifiers. But within this realm, within this order, there are a plenitude of voids, plenitudes of of regions or spaces within it where there are no signifiers. So here we could speak of a symbolic void, which is some kind of, in one sense, it's outside of the symbolic, owing to there not being signifiers there. But on the other hand, it is an outside which is interiorized within the symbolic. It is, you can imagine, a region within it. It's surrounded by signifiers. So it is a void within it, an outside within it, and not outside of it. There is no escape from the symbolic, as we all know. But... Uh, but yeah, here we have a form which, uh, wherein Lacan conceptualizes the void uh, in the symbolic as some kind of internalized outside, a void within it. It is the same thing with, with the real, and this in a very paradoxical way. Um, early on, I think it's in his fourth seminar perhaps where he first says it, maybe earlier, when he defines the real as always being by definition full, meaning that the real is the 
is understood as some, some kind of undifferentiated plenitude where there cannot be any, any voids, not at all. And which erupts, you know, in, in relation to the symbolic as that which destabilizes it, which destroys it, the, the functioning and workings of the, of the symbolic because it's, it resists being negativized or symbolized or signified. Um, but nevertheless, even though the real is defined as being by definition full, or as it says in its 11th seminar, it's uh, defined by a certain lack of lack. Uh, right from the outset in his first seminar, he speaks of the functioning of the symbolic as being absolutely uh, impossible, you know, without the void in the real. Um, in essence, he says that in the void there is only plenitude, uh, in the real there is only plenitude. But the signifier, in order to, to operate it being, you know, negative element, needs some kind of original almost or, or, or void, wherein interchange can take place where permutation can take place, which is a fundamental lack, which enables signifiers to, uh, to combine and permutate, and which enables that which is signified in some sense to be different from itself. Uh, without this, there would only be plenitude. And he speaks of this void uh, as being created by the signifier. This is the important point, that the real on the one hand is always full, but the signifier nevertheless creates a hole in the real, which is absolutely fundamental and necessary for its functioning. So here we have the paradoxical status of the real void, according to Lacan. Um, in the seventh seminar, he says it right out. Um, he says that um, the fashioning of the signifier and the uh, emergence of a void or a gap or a hole in the real are identical implying there cannot be any real void, except if it is not created by the signifier. And this is what he speaks of also in terms of the murder of the thing, borrowing the term from Kosher. But, but here we have another way of understanding uh, the void in the real, uh, which is different from the void in the symbolic, that both are nevertheless voids in a sense. But the paradoxical way which Lacan's understand the void in the real is, of course, that it cannot exist in itself. It can only exist by being created by the signifier. And lastly, if it continued to be, in a sense, independent of the signifier, it would immediately dissolve and be filled and be reduced once again to, to plenitude. It can only subsist in the real by being, in a sense, internalized within the void. That is, in the void of the symbolic, that is. Meaning that the void in the real is, in one sense, inside the real, but also inside of the symbolic. We will return to this point a bit further on, but this is important to bear in mind. But here we have two, two different ways of, of understanding the voids according to Lacan, the real and the, the symbolic. And, and my point of departure in my book basically is to uh, raise the, 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 the void to a general category, which corresponds to three different concepts, which is basically a naming of the voids in the different orders. Uh, I just named them, avoiding the symbolic, which is an inscribed region within the symbolic where there are no signifiers, I call silence. I avoid in the imaginary, which is an inscribed region where there are no images, I call darkness. And avoid within the real where there are where nothing exists, I call emptiness. So we have a conceptual triad here of voids in the different orders, which is silence, darkness, and emptiness. So uh, 
what I do afterwards is that I try to understand something having to do with how the different orders, the real, the symbolic, and the imaginary, are separated from each other and how they relate to each other. The thing is that Lacan always, right from the outset, thinks that the three orders, of course, are, are separate, are distinct. And um, in a sense that they are separated uh, in their internal functioning, etc. And the question about the dynamics between them, their interactions, their relations, etc., is somewhat, um, let's say, mobile. It isn't pinned down in a definite way where we can see a definite like a continuation in Lacan's thinking up until the point where he introduces his theory during the 70s of the Borromean link, the Borromean rings, the Borromean rings, um, uh, not. And uh, where he, in fact, introduced a general way of understanding the ways in which they are separate and related to each other at the same time. I won't dwell upon this, but you can say, in short, that I introduce a new way to thinking their separation and relation, just distinct from, from the, the, uh, the Borromean rings. And I do it as follows. It's quite, in essence, it's a topical way of understanding separation, not a topological one. Uh, in between the rings, the separations between the rings, that is, I think of it as voids. That is, in between the symbolic and the real, for example, there is a void which represents their separation. And I conceptualize this in the following manner, um, in terms of the voids which I introduced within the different orders, that is the symbolic and silence, darkness, and emptiness. I conceptualize it as follows. In the disjunction of two orders, there is a void. And this void is a space wherein the internalized voids of the different orders, the orders in question, converge, just as in the case with the symbolic and the real, according to Lacan, where the real void can only subsist by being internalized in the symbolic void. There's a kind of emerge almost in this, in this case for him. The very same thing here, and I generalize this. We could speak about this as follows. In the disjunction of the symbolic and the real, silence and emptiness converge. In the disjunction of the symbolic and the imaginary, silence and darkness converge. In the disjunction of the imaginary and the real darkness and emptiness converge. And the thing about this conceptualization is, on the one hand, that it is uh, generalized. It's the same, same thing for all the three of them, so I don't privilege any one of them. The second thing is that it is a generalized way also of thinking their separation and their relation. And the point here is that their relation and separation are identical. It's the very same thing. The void between them, which represents their separation, is the very space where they're related to each other indirectly through their internalized voids. You know, so so yeah, we have a theory about all of this. But but uh, yeah, so the first step is just naming the voids, the symbolic, the silence, darkness, and emptiness. The second step is to 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 think their separation and relation, which are identical in terms of convergence of the voids the disjunction of the symbolic and the imaginary silence and darkness converge, etc. But the third step I take here is try to relate uh, these thoughts and these different voids to different kinds of, of phenomena, as it were. Uh, 
And uh, the question is what emerges or what takes place in these kinds of voids in between the different orders. And uh, I approach it as follows. Uh, what takes place where in the disjunction of the symbolic and the real, where silence and emptiness converge? You know, in a sense, Lacan always have already written about this. I have nothing really new to add. It is the space where that which emerges from the real persists symbolization, where it cannot be negativized, cannot be symbolized, etc. It's basically the unnameable, that which cannot be named. So that which emerges in this in-between space, in the disjunction of the symbolic and the real, is the unnameable. And in the disjunction of the symbolic and the imaginary, what takes place there, um, we could think about Saussure's um, uh, conception of the, of the sign as being the unity of the signifier and the image which it signifies. That is, as a, as a symbolic element and an imaginary element. And a void in between these levels, could uh, we could understand it as, as, as a form of rupture in the field of, of meaning. And thus, we could think of that which erupts or emerges in this void uh, in between the symbolic and the imaginary as the senseless, in short. And then, lastly, we have the void in between the imaginary and the real, where darkness and emptiness converge. And what takes place there? We can just reproduce the same argument as in the case of the unnameable. That is, something real emerges which resists being imagined, which cannot be grasped in an image. And what could we... We can just name this the unimaginable just in the same way what we spoke about the unnameable. And this is the third step, right? First, we have silence, darkness, emptiness. And then we have, then we have a way of thinking, the, the separation and relation of these uh, of the orders in terms of the convergence of the voids. And lastly, we have just a naming of the different phenomena which pertains to it, the senseless, the unnameable, and the unimaginable. But here we come to we find ourselves in some kind of trouble, I think, <laughs> perhaps serious trouble, even, you know, even because here we have actually opened up a way of thinking rigorously in a generalized matter, the disjunction of the symbolic, you know, of the real and the imaginary, where darkness and emptiness converge, the proper locus of the unimaginable. The problem with, with this void it has, is that it has absolutely nothing to do with the symbolic. Nothing, you know. <laughs> it is located, as it were, radically outside of it. So it seems here that we have a, a void which has nothing to do with the symbolic. It's not created by it, and it does not subsist, you know, it does not subsist um, as a function of the, the workings of the signifier. It is radically outside of it. Not only is it uh, independent of the signifier, but also of the voids, within the symbolic, that is of silence, as in the case of the whole in the real, according to Lacan, which is interiorized in, in, in the whole in the symbolic. Here, it subsists independent of this, both of the signifier and of, of silence. So this void is, as it were, beyond silence. And lastly, that which, uh, those phenomena which pertains to, 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 to this void, that which I speak of in terms of the unimaginable, it is not even unnameable. <laughs> it, has, it, has, it, is even, it isn't even determined negatively in, in, in relation to, to anything having to do with the symbolic. 
So the question obviously arises, you know, how to think about this. It seems that we have opened up the space where we find ourselves on the wrong, on the other side of the limit, corresponding to interdiction, uh, 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 prohibition um, in Lacan. There cannot be any role void in the real independent signifier. Here we have one. You cannot approach anything radically outside of the of the of the symbolic, etc. Here we have something, you know, since the unimaginable is not unnameable. And uh, this implies also a form of generalization of the idea of, of the real as such. You know. The real in Lacan, late Lacan, is defined as existence, existence, which some kind of reference to, to Latin meaning standing outside. Mm -hmm. It is defined as standing outside of the symbolic, not of the imaginary. The symbolic stands outside of the field of, of, of meaning. And uh, uh, it is determined, in a sense, as, as negative in relation to the symbolic, basically as the unnameable. But how, here we have the real, which doesn't exist in, in cor correlative to the symbolic, but to the imaginary. To the imaginary. So, so... The question then arises if this implies that that we should reject it a priori, you know, because it breaks with this prohibition of Lacan, or if we should affirm it, basically implying that we just affirm the definition of the of the real as Lacan uh, presents it in his later teaching. That is that the real is that which exists, but independent of where it exists. Independent if it exists correlative to the symbolic or the imaginary, but the way in which it emerges as the unnameable or the unimaginable is dependent precisely on the locus of its emergence. That is, if it emerges in the disjunction of the real, the symbolic, or as the unnameable, or in the disjunction of the imaginary and the real as unimaginable. And what I basically do in my book is I affirm you know, this generalized conception of the real as existence as such, independent on what it is correlative to, the symbolic and the imaginary, although I don't write about it, but this is implicit there. On the one hand, on the other hand, I affirm there being a void which is outside and absolutely independent of language, which is not interiorized in it, which is not created by it. In this sense, at least in relation to the symbolic, it is primordial. And uh, the question, of course, arises how to think about this at all. And I just throw out the, the hypothesis, which is the point of departure in a sense of the book as a whole, after having you know, presented all of this uh, highly abstract theoretical uh, jumble, <laughs> uh, that I just hypothesized that uh, there is a void in the real, primordial and independent. There is a primordial emptiness. That's it. So this is my, my basic theoretical matrix, which correspond, I'm sorry, the first page of this book <laughs> and afterwards I just I just approach different kinds of phenomena which correspond to the void where emptiness and darkness converge the disjunction of the symbolic uh, of the imaginary and the real that is uh, basically the phenomenology of uh, the unimaginable that's what my book is is about more concretely when it comes to specific phenomena that's it 
No, it's really beautifully written. And I first came across your kind of theorizing. I mean, first of all, I really appreciate, I think I said this last time we spoke too, that you are developing your own theory because I think that's really important. And I wish more people would do that, like seeing what you found lacking in Lacan and then, you know, developing your own theories around that. And you first, I first encountered that when you wrote your piece for the book on Bergman, which I'll have to plug since you are the final essay in this collection psychoanalytic perspectives on the films of Ingmar Bergman from Freud to Lacan and beyond um and you wrote about beyond silence and and kind of articulated like uh highlighted these theories using Bergman's films um but this book of course your your new book goes into in so much more depth and really articulates the theory you're developing and to me it seems like I mean, I love Lacan, and I love reading Lacan, and I love being in Lacanian supervision and analysis, and I've learned so much from him. But I get very frustrated when people take Lacan's writing or speaking mostly um, as kind of like the word of God, you know, <laughs> because like it's great. And I find like especially like reading his seminars, I feel like his his speaking is like so um emblematic of the psychoanalytic process in itself in that like you know he's going on all these tangents and he's obviously so brilliant and like well-read and educated and like has learned so much and he, he like you follow all these trains of thoughts and then like you come he comes back around and then there's like this aha moment where you're like oh that's it and then like really is always a, an amazing kind of revelation and then he goes back on these tangents again and goes around and to me it like really like emulates the psychoanalytic process itself in the way he speaks and that's what I love so much about it besides of course the like amazing con content and like connections that he brings together and things um but but I've come to this point where I've realized like the theorists that have like the biggest followings and make the biggest kind of changes in the field are all people who you know are speaking from a place of like their their own positionality, right? Like what we're supposed to be helping analysis to come to, like their place in the world and so that they can articulate themselves uh, in the world from like the standpoint that they're coming from. And that's what all of these like kind of great psychoanalysts have done, including Lacan. But then it seems to be a shame that like, students of course there's a point in your career your development where you know you have to learn kind of what the masters teaches and 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 kind of understand where different theorists are coming from so that you can kind of come to a place of your own understanding and your own place and insights in the world but i hate to see when really brilliant people kind of get stuck there and they just kind of stay there and i feel like they are just kind of regurgitating what other people have already said and lacan you know, of course, he's wonderful, but he also died, you know, more than 40 years ago. And like, there's much more, there's different things going on in the world. There was no internet then. You know, we have like all sorts of wonderful like queer theory and gender theory and all sorts of other things um, that have been developed since then and that are really rich. So I, I really like when people are like kind of bringing things together in their own ways. And I love that you're doing that. Um, and I think what one of the things that really turns people off from Lacan, which, you know, I want more people to kind of get into him because I do think he's wonderful. And Laplanche, I really love Laplanche as well. Um, but of course, people always say, oh, he's so difficult. But I think actually, if you like read read enough, you know, I tell people just like let the seminars kind of wash over you. You don't have to understand everything he's talking about and read like go try to look up every theorist that he's mentioning and like understand all the different like footnotes in it, you know, just like kind of read it and see what you get out of it and then read it again and read it again. 
um, because it feels to me more like a process than something you have to like study and like parse apart. Um, So people, of course, always say that, oh, he's so difficult. Um, But it really isn't that difficult once you kind of immerse yourself in it for a couple of years. Um, But also that uh, I feel like this is a big thing that people feel is missing is that it seems to a lot of people outside of the Lacanian kind of field is it's just like too hyper intellectualized and too much focus on language. Um, even of course, language is what we're using in psych- in the psychoanalytic treatment, which is, even though you said this is very theoretical, it has very real implications in the clinic as well. Um, and like people, of course, are saying like, you know, what about object relations? What about pre-verbal communications? You know, what about things that are outside of language? And you can argue everything is inside the symbolic, like you said, inside language. But also we've built language in the symbolic as a tool to understand the world that we're in. And it doesn't take the place of it. It kind of reminds me of um, like scientists and the enlightenment that have come along and have decided like, okay, you can measure all of these things, you know, you can measure the earth and you can measure people's, you know, behavior and stuff. And then that means that's all there is to people or that's all there is to the planet or material reality. And they're like looking at the structures of things and you're kind of losing a lot of the essence, you know, like, like the saying of like, you know, the boards that make up your house aren't what your home is. Right. Um, And so I think this kind of gets back to that, even though it is in a very theoretical way, it gets back to like, that there is a primordial <laughs> void and substance that's outside of all of this kind of language and symbolic, um, and that we should uh, we should recognize that. And that's a lot of what people are dealing with at the end of the day, actually. And that um, I was at a conference in Sweden, it must have been 2019, probably, but it was on uh, was queering, queering death, I think it was called. And one of the presenters there presented on um the loss of her child like she had miscarried or had lost a very young infant and there were some students that were very much like talking about her loss from like a very like Foucault Judith Butler point of view where everything's like hyper intellectualized and like how we are all like projections of, of, of each other and like everything is kind of you know, only happening in this kind of symbolic way uh, or and imaginary way. Um, and the woman was just like, something very real happens when there's a death. You know, like there is a hole that is left. There is a void. And it's not just a void in my, you know, imaginary relations. It's a void. You know, like there's an actual void when your baby dies. You know, for example, that was her example. Um, and I thought that was a really good point because it's like we can... I, I mean, I love hyper-intellectualizing it sometimes, and I also love to think of like the implications of that. We're all alive in each other's kinds of minds and symbols and imaginary ways. But like, there is there is real substance to the world and <laughs> to us, and it actually like preceded us. Um, and yeah, it'll probably be there after us, you know. <laughs> like, <laughs> so I think it's really important to bring that back, and then also to merge that idea with still like using the the symbolic imaginary real because I love these registers and I think they're so rich um, and you can do so much with them and they really help you understand kind of human interactions but there's also you know a whole world outside of us as well you know yeah exactly yeah I agree totally with everything you have said here actually and and uh, and this is the point you know speaking first about Lacanianism which I think is some kind of it's it's oxymoronic you know read his seminar 
if he would have lived 10 years more, he would have abandoned the Dormian Rings, for example. He abandoned the majority of his general papers. He would probably have done that. He wasn't Lacanian. He said he was Freudian. Take it as you wish, you know. To be completely honest, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. As you said, 40 years, it's a long time. It's a long time. So it's time to, to, to be a bit more open. I, I, I think that, that orthodoxy, etc., is, is not, in a sense, it's not uh, possible to coincide. It's irreconcilable with, with, with psychoanalysis as such. Exactly. Uh, and, and if you look what Lacan actually did, and this is one of the points I like most about him, he, he remained faithful for that which he saw or that which he discovered concerning the, the, the unconscious. That is, he didn't write, he spoke, first of all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and secondly, the way he spoke, in the, in the form of wits, etc., it, it reflects or imitates or reduplicates uh, the form of language which he listened to uh, when, when the analyst spoke, the symptoms and wits, etc. I like this a lot. I like this very, very much. And this, just this kind of fidelity towards this, primarily, makes him a non-theoretician <laughs> or, you know, pseudo or quasi-theoretician. He doesn't situate himself when he speaks as a theoretician. Indeed, he theorizes. Indeed, he does. Yeah. But that's not essentially, I believe, what he does. He speaks as an analyst. Always. Always. And this is reflected primarily with the way that, in the way that he speaks in his, um, his teachings. And, and, I, and I believe this to be absolutely essential when it comes to psychoanalysis. Um, in fact, yeah, uh, I, I, I don't think that my book is to be regarded as theory. Obviously, I've been spo- speaking for like 30 minutes about, about theory, so it sounds very theoretical. But that's not the point. That's not the point at all. No, 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 not at all. As as is ev- as is like everything, I believe that that truly is purely psychoanalytical. It emerges in some way from the clinical encounter or from other things which, which corresponds to your experience of the world, of, of pain, of happiness, of aesthetics, of, of religion, whatever it may be. There is something like a real there, which I think it you have to be loyal or faithful to in order. To, to speak, you know, in a way that is properly psychoanalytical. You can almost see the difference in different psychoanalysts, those who situate themselves as pure theorists and those who situate themselves more freely in relation to their own analysis or the psychoanalytic experience in relation to their analysis. I like this. And, and I hope that this is reflected at least somewhat in, in my book, uh, which also is reflected by... by the shifting tone and styles uh, within the book. There are elements uh, there which I hope at least partially can be cons- conceived of as being rather more poetical than theoretical. And this is the point. This is the point. You know, it's a topic I return to all the time, poetry, which I believe is absolutely essential, uh, at least for a form of, of, of listening to and speaking with, with the patients, poetically. And, and if this wouldn't form part of my, my, my discourse or my way of writing this book, I would feel as some kind of traitor. <laughs> so I, I, I hope that, that the book itself and my theory, that it, it serves solely the purpose 
many purposes, primarily the purpose of, of legitimizing perhaps a way of speaking, uh, which is properly psychoanalytical, which is poetic in a different way than the one which Lacan speaks about. His uh, poetry is the poetry of the wit. Says this in his 24th seminar, I think. Um, it is in as much as a correct interpretation extinguishes the symptom that the truth is being defined as being poetic. We have nothing beautiful to say, he says. It's another resonance that is at stake, that of the wit. You know, the poetry of, of, of Lacan is the poetry of the wit, that which corresponds to, as I speak of it, the disjunction of the, the symbolic and the real. But I speak of another kind of, of, of poetry, which is not so funny, <laughs> to put it like that. It's another resonance that is at stake, a form of poetry which reverberates in this void beyond silence, which is poetic in another way. And wouldn't it be for me remaining faithful to this kind of use of speech, you know, psychoanalysis is not cure of this. Nevertheless, I believe that there is something radically outside language having to do with the unimaginable of these voids, which in some way can stand in some kind of indirect relation to speech. And this is what I felt that I have to be remain faithful to. That is another form of poetry, which can be integrated into the psychoanalytic practice understood as a poetic art interpretation. And I hope this comes through in one way or another. It shouldn't be read as purely that's something I, it was necessary for me to pass through that in order to write about that, which I find is absolutely essential and important, that which I want to, to, to convey, which I do partially by actually speaking of it, speaking of poetry, speaking about different theological and philosophical and aesthetic phenomena, speaking about mourning, speaking about death and the death drive, but uh, also something which I try to convey by my way of, of speaking, my way of writing which is not reducible to prose, to theoretical, classical way. That's not my, my thing, you know. And in order to situate myself, as you, as you say, in a form of relatively free position, that is, I was, I feel that it was almost necessary to place myself, situate myself in the situation of the position of, of exile in relation to the, to the, to the to psychoanalysis as such. I haven't left it, I'm there that I have found a freedom in relation to it, to, 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 to develop these things, almost forced to do it in order to develop these things. And since this way of doing it uh, liberates you also from, from theory, because it's theory that, you know, that eats you up and eats up your freedom and creates some kind of uh, Lacanian machine sometimes, uh, you are liberated from theory. This enables you to, uh, I believe, to to create in a much more free manner, and uh, remain faithful to that, watch that which, which, in a sense, uh, is unrelated to that which comes from the the field in question which you have exiled yourself from, and which opens up a space for, for example, aesthetics. Uh, aesthetics, I believe, said that that uh, the whole in the real and. The way of speaking about it. Sometimes you can speak about mourning or loss in a hyper intellectual way, as you said. I don't like that. If you go into a church, a cemetery, if you look at something, if you look at a beautiful painting which suddenly strikes you, you remain silent. You know? 
some things are only possible to to be in contact with, with by remaining silent. There's something having to do with aesthetics or religious experience, I, I believe, that corresponds to this void beyond silence and the proper sphere of the unimaginable, um, which requires silence, you know, requires silence in order to take a leap beyond it. I think Heidegger says something simple, uh, similar, simple. He doesn't say things very simple. He says something simple that you in the essential occurrence of being, as he writes about it, that is the encounter with something which induces awe, you have to be remain silent in order to take a leap, you know, to take a leap into what he speaks of a void where you are in it, are, are able to endure poetically being, you know, something like this, something like this. You have to remain silent in order to... Uh, get in contact with something which is even beyond silence, which is the unimaginable. I don't know. One, example, one example would be what Kant speaks about the sublime, precisely the, the experience of awe, you know, viewing, confronting yourself, something emerges, it may be a volcano, it may be the mountains, the storm, you know, the, the thunder, this huge natural phenomenon, which I understand not as being unnameable, but unimaginable. Precisely because they are so large, so forceful, etc., that you cannot capture them in an image. They emerge as real, not in relation as correlative to the symbolic, as Jurisance, for example, but as to the imaginary, as not being able to be imagined. They are too big, too grand. And this is an experience where you, which of course corresponds historically at least to, to polytheism, polytheism, as different from that which concerns the unnameable. The symbolic, which would be God, monotheism. Here we have proper locus of the polytheism, the encounter with the sublime, with the unimaginable. Here, uh, you're not supposed to speak when you see this. You're just supposed to remain silent and, in a way, endure, endure a position of almost not, not existing <laughs> because it reduces you to nothing. And this is the very precondition of being able to not enjoy it. No, because it's not a question about enjoy, enjoyment in the sense of jouissance or pleasure, but of just experiencing being, you know, being in contact with, with the, that which you could speak of in terms of, of the holy, of the religious or aesthetics um, feeling in a very, very pure way. You're almost obliged to remain silent. And if you start speaking while, uh, while something mag magnific is happening, you, you will miss the point. So this is the more extreme cases of that which I speak of, you know. But in the everyday life, everyday experience, in psychoanalysis, it's much more subtle, much, much more subtle. But much more subtle as when you pass through something which strikes you as being, it just gets to you relatively immediately, relatively immediately. And it's, for me at least, as I understood it, closer to intuition than, uh, than signification and language. And uh, and this is what I try to, to approach and speak of. And I believe it is impossible, important to, to to separate this from the use of language. The proper locus of the aesthetic, the beautiful, and of the religious experience, as it were. Although you don't have to articulate it in terms of religion or aesthetics, but something which corresponds to these.
kinds of resonances or reverberations of frequency. Exactly, like the mystical experiences are examples yeah. of things that are beyond language and the whole point of there's always something lost when you articulate something like, you know, there's always something lost in language that doesn't quite capture it, you know. I have to ask you too, because you write so poetically, even when you go into like the registers and mathemes. <laughs> but how many languages do you speak? Do you speak four languages, English, Spanish, Swedish, and French? Exactly. Yeah, that's right. I'm envious. <laughs> Still uh, working hard with my French, you know, but uh, it's uh, it's improving for every week. I'm in Paris, but yeah, four languages. Yeah. yeah, that's nice. I I I had thought I grew up in Miami, so I had Spanish, and then I thought I lost it because I didn't live in Miami for 15 years. But then since I've been learning Swedish, all the Spanish is coming back. Like every time I try to think of a word, not every time now, more and more it's becoming the Swedish word. But like for a long time, it's like trying to think of a word and the Spanish word will come more like I'll be saying a sentence and I'll just like throw in a Spanish word, <laughs> a Swedish word. And I don't even realize it. And Carl's like, that's not Swedish. <laughs> it's very, um, it's interesting to see what it's like to learn multiple languages. Speaking about this, I, I, I came to think about something which, which made me profoundly happy, profoundly, profoundly happy. Uh, of course, by having my parents are from Argentina, so I love Borges. <laughs> and I watched this uh, lecture of his, uh, I think it was in Harvard or Cambridge, something like that, for five hours. Uh, it's on YouTube, where he speaks about poetry and writing and, and literature. And uh, he, he says something which I find uh, extraordinary, and I agree absolutely, totally with him. He speaks in, in perfect English, perfect English, you know, with his Argentinian dialect, of course. And he was almost blind, and he, like, reiterates uh, poems in many different languages, etc. But he, he said two things which I remember. One, poetry is always found around the corner. It's just there waiting for you. That's the proper way of thinking about something essential about poetry, that and not necessarily even the creative process. That's true, I think, of aesthetics as a whole. That's the first part. But the second part, which is that which, which uh, corresponds with that which Jesus said right now, is that he said by the end, said two things. First, we get it wrong. Uh, when we read the same poem several times, we, uh, we think we're reading the same poem, but we are not. You know, the only true you know, uh, occurrence when you really, really are reading the poet, poem, uh, when you really, really read in a true sense, it's the first time. Because it gets to you immediately because you don't understand it. <laughs> this I like. And lastly, he ends these lectures, five, six lectures, I think, by uh, reciting a poem about Spinoza, in, uh, in, in Spanish. And he said, uh, I will read this in Spanish to you. you know, uh, all the better because you will able, be able to enjoy it more. <laughs> I like this. And I, 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 have, I had a similar experience one uh, many years ago uh, when I was reading uh, Verlaine, Paul Verlaine, uh, the lover of, of Rambo, at least for a while, um, who, uh, who actually shot him. You know the story. Uh, but uh, 
I was reading, I think it's uh, Romance sans, sans Parole, uh, Songs Without Words, a beautiful collection of poems. And uh, I started writing it in, in Swedish. It was this dual uh, translation where you had the original text side by side. And this was before I, I spoke uh, French. Of course, it's somewhat similar to Spanish. It's not, but you can get some of the things. But I started reading it in, in Swedish. It was a very beautiful translation. Um, I read it and I found struck by it. And then I just felt the necessity to to read it in French, aloud. You know. And I did, and I found it much more beautiful. I didn't understand what I was reading, but it was so much more beautiful you know, because I could understand something having to do with his poetry, which is particularly that which is the title of his uh, collection says, Songs Without Words. Mm. Music, wordless songs, you know, they are definitely, definitely enunciated uh, with words, etc. But that which is absolutely fundamental to his poetry is the musical aspect, which, as I said, reverberates in the sphere of the beautiful, in this um, disjunction of the, the real and the imaginary, to put it very theoretically. But this is the point. This is the point. There is something having to do with his way of writing and singing, because he's singing, you know, Homer's book, song one, song two, song three. It's not book one, book two, book three. Lucretius, you know, the great uh, Roman Epicurean philosopher, it's written in Dactylic Hexameter. It's supposed to be sung, you know. <laughs> but, but this uh, experience of Berlin uh, profound me, profoundly impacted me. Impacted me. I didn't understand anything. And this is the reason why I could enjoy it all the more. And this is absolutely essential, I think, to, to poetry as such. And opens up a path, you know, which may lead you at least to something which is more unimaginable than unimaginable. This is what I think. And which is also usable, I think, in the psychoanalytic setting understood as talking cure, which doesn't imply that you should, uh, you should sing to your patients, my God, but uh, that you speak in a certain way which may reverberate in this place inside, which is radical, outside of language, which corresponds to something which a couple of patients, several depending on who you meet, have within themselves, which is something which Freud almost never speaks of, and Lacan very, very little. And one of the phenomena which we encounter all the time in, in our clinical work, namely solitude, you know, why, why doesn't Freud write about solitude? Why does Lacan write so little about solitude? There are two things which we encounter all the time. Solitude and mourning. Freud wrote one article about mourning, and a couple of times also, but it's primarily about melancholia. You could argue that there is an implicit theory of, of, of mourning in Freud's psychoanalysis. Nevertheless, um, he doesn't account for it in a profound sense. I write a chapter about it. And, and Lacan writes about it, I think, two or three times. Mourning. Mourning is one of the, you could argue that psychoanalysis to a certain degree, in some sense, is a form of, of learning. You learn how to mourn in order to liberate a space in yourself where you can love and desire and I don't know what, whatever. But, but you have to learn to mourn. <laughs> you know, this is what we all human beings have to, to confront. Why, does they, why do they write so little about mourning and solitude? But the solitude which I speak of right now is a different kind of solitude than, oh, I miss you. Oh, she or he broke up with me. 
I love him or her. I want to be with you. It's a different kind of solitude because that solitude is conditioned by a form of, of absence, an absence of the other, absence of the person I, I love or who loved me. You know, this is uh, uh, a form of, of, of loss or solitude or mourning which corresponds to the symbolic in the sense that that which is lacking is the other and which does corresponds to lack and silence but there is another form of solitude which we uh, encounter of course in psychosis but also in many persons who are profoundly creative and gifted people who create people who uh, writes people who creative persons and also persons which we could speak of in some kind of nosographic sense almost all, all as schizoid where there is a form of speechlessness you know something inside of them which doesn't let itself be expressed uh, symbolically in speech there is something that remains inside with some kind of profound place of, of inner solitude some kind of in, inner refuge many times where they have retreated themselves into an internal void which is many times populated you know by 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 images they have universes you know, they have uh, they have uh, beautiful heavens and they have uh, you know images which emerges in intuitions which they populated with and sometimes even create with you know in, in their concrete life many of them become artists many of them remain non-artists and they sometimes suffocate in their inner refuge they retreat themselves from the symbolic and to a solitude, which I, in, in the real void, uh, uh, they retreat themselves into a void beyond silence. That's how I write about it. And with these patients, you know, it's absolutely essential, I believe, as a psychoanalyst, to be able to find a way of speaking with them. And this goes for, for both ways, that reverberates precisely in this inner place of solitude, inner place of solitude beyond silence. That's why I speak of the poetic art of interpretation, because there is a way of speaking, I believe, that may resonate, re resonate in this void, which doesn't signify anything uh, in a sense, but may, may, may something having to do with the images which populate this inner emptiness, which are uh, beheft with, with, uh, with the sense of the beautiful or the religious sentiment many times, may emerge suddenly, you know, and, and encounter the word which is enunciated by the by the analyst, which must be poetic in this sense, you know, must be poetic for it to, to reach this space, this place where their uh, inner images in their inner solitude, you know, is uh, where they are, are located. And this creates also the possibility for them to, in a way, start to reverse the process of retreating from the symbolic. It may open up a door, a pathway between their inner solitude beyond silence and a form of solitude or a form of mourning conditioned by the absence of the other. That is, it may enable longing, love, desire, etc. But for this to be possible, I believe that you have to create a connection between their internal void beyond silence, which is populated by images, which are not the images which signifiers signify in the, in the common sense, and the signifiers which are enunciated by the analyst, which has to reverberate therein. And this, I believe, is possible 
uh, solely through poetic speech, which may enable them to commence a form of creative poetic process, which begins proceeding from their intuitive uh, images, the intuitive images which they carry within them, which populate their inner world, their inner refuge. They may start to create by themselves speaking poetically. You know, they don't have to sing. <laughs> I repeat, that's something which touches upon the sphere of, 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 of the intuitive or the beautiful. And this, of course, is radically different from that which Lacan spoke about when I spoke about the poetry having to do with the wit. Here it's uh, a form of poetry uh, rather relating to, to, uh, to the unimaginable or to, uh, to, to the intuitive or to the beautiful. So in this sphere, in this void, of course, there are no symptoms. This has nothing to do with symbolic, nothing at all. But uh, nevertheless, if that which I say, which is also, of course, based on my clinical practice, I cannot help myself. This is the way I speak. Um, and uh, uh, if it is true that something may reverberate therein, and this may create some kind of connection which enables creation in the poetic sense by the uh, analysis which has retreated to its inner solitude, and this may enable a path to open up towards silence, the symbolic enabling mourning and belonging and love, desire, if this is the case, then this has nothing to do with symptoms. And we may, you know, change the formulation of Lacan from his uh, 24th seminar. It is not only in as much that uh, it extinguishes the symptom, the correct interpretation, um, that the truth is being um, defined as being poetic, and we have nothing beautiful to say. It's only about the wit. This is different. It is only in as much, you could argue, that a poetic interpretation reverberates uh, in, in uh, the void beyond silence that it's defined as being true, but true in a different sense. If true in a way that has nothing to do with language. Again, we enter in the, the realm of the very, very speculative. Yeah, but it's in a way that moves you, right? Like, like poetry moves you in a way and thinking more of life in this poetic way. I feel like that, that goes along better with dreams. It goes along better with, yeah, poetry and art and creativity. And I very much put psychoanalysis in a category more with this kind of creative, creative movement rather than this kind of totally like intellectual exercise because <laughs> that would just be yeah that would just be we could study that in classes and things like that but that's not really the work of psychoanalysis in, in the clinical sense no not at all i agree totally which leads us of course to the question of what creation is <laughs> at all how to conceptualize it lacan has a very particular way of understanding creation this, of course, isn't Freud's major topic, but Lacan writes about it. And uh, he speaks of it in terms of creatio ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. Um, that is, that the enunciation of the signifier creates something which wasn't there before. As I said earlier, paraphrasing him, that the fabrication of a signifier and the creation of a, a hole in the real are identical. That which creation makes does for for Lacan basically is creates a whole hole in the real. Therefore, he, he turns it upside down. It's the creation of the signifier that creates the nothing in the real, but not that the signifier is created out of nothing. It's basically the opposite. But nevertheless, he ties creation solely to the symbolic, 
situate yourself in the symbolic and approaches something having to do with silence, like the internal void, create a new signifier which creates a void in the real, inside silence, basically. And that's one way of seeing it. You know. Another way of seeing it is proceeding from a wholly different point. And here we just have to listen to the artist. We just have to listen to the very creative person within the fields of art, literature, poetry, science, religion, etc., etc. So many of them speak of the very same thing. The very same thing. They have very similar ways of speaking of their creative process. Which is not it's not this. They have their solitude. What happens? An image pops up out of nowhere. They have a very, very clear intuition. They suddenly see something. Very clear. Very, very, very clear. Sometimes it's um, it's even a riddle for themselves. They have to work with it, interpret it, etc. But it suddenly pops up, you know. And then it's a very strong image. It's not intuition as we often speak about, some kind of gut feeling. I feel that it's not this. It's an image which almost resembles the, the structure of, of, of revelation, um, which pops up, which is very aesthetical, which is left with a very, very strong feeling, aesthetics or something religious, many times. And they, this impels them to, to create, to create in a sense. And here we have some kind of triad, um, if that which I say is applicable to this, I hope so, that we begin in this inner solitude, which I spoke of in terms of uh, solitude beyond silence, the disjunction of the, the imaginary and the real, where darkness and emptiness converge. Therein is suddenly emerges an intuition, which became becomes the point of departure for the symbolic creation. Here we don't have Kriatsu ex nihilo, where everything begins in the symbolic. Everything begins in the real void. This is step one. Step two is the imaginary intuition which suddenly emerges in darkness. And step three is symbolic creation in, in silence, basically. It's a wholly different way of speaking about uh, creation. And I think that you can introduce this in the very same manner in a psychoanalytic setting. But <laughs> this is the problem, of course. It's not everyone who have access to the space in themselves. It's not everyone for which this kind of images emerges now and then, which may be the point of departure, you know, for a form of symbolic creation in the clinical setting. I think that you can paraphrase, perhaps quote, I think I remember, Heidegger. <laughs> I think he wrote something like this, because it's not everyone who has this. You know, this is sudden, this is only because, because of the nature of the problem of the phenomena which I speak of, of those who actually have this kind of access to this form of thinking, which is a thinking which is not linguistic, which is sudden. I think that Heidegger wrote, for the few, for the rare, who are endowed with the great courage required for solitude, in order to think the nobility of being and to speak of its uniqueness. You have to have access to your solitude beyond silence. It's only therein that these kinds of friendly aesthetical images may emerge proceeding from which you can create. If not, you remain within the bounds of Kriatsex uh, and It is what it is, what you want me to say. Bion says something, something similar. It's, it's like that because of the nature of the problem. Yeah. Well, it makes sense because what I don't see how anything could be created if there wasn't any void. There has to be a void for something to be created. It makes sense to me.
<laughs> and I think everyone should read Borges and Clarice Lispector. Just say that. And of course, should read your book. And also I have to mention, this is in Ian Parker's series at Rutledge. And uh, Ian Parker wrote a wonderful introduction for it. So that's also worth reading. Super fabulous. And then, of course, get the Bergman book as well. Get them both. And then read Clarice Lispector and Borges. <laughs> I can't say anything else that I agree with you, but I may be a bit partial here. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here, Pablo. Thank you, Vanessa. It was a glad can a bullet dog. Glad can a bullet dog. All right. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Pablo Lerner. Be sure to check out his new book, Speculating on the Edge of Psychoanalysis, Rings and Voids. And check out the book, Psychoanalytic Perspectives on the Films of Ingmar Bergman, From Freud to Lacan and Beyond, of which Pablo has contributed a piece. Links to everything can be found at renderingunconscious.org. You can also visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net. You can follow me at social media at rawsin underscore, that's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore, at Instagram, and drvanessasinclair23 at TikTok. You can also catch our previous discussion, Rendering Unconscious, episode 182, Pablo Lerner Contemplates Death, Poetry, Lacan, Freud, The Death Drive, and the films of Ingmar Bergman. And now the song, All Poets Are Pornographers, from the album of the same name a collaboration I did with Pete Murphy, available at petemurphy.bandcamp.com. Enjoy. All poets are pornographers. Oh my God, the drip of, the sweat, and the cum. Let's begin. fruit, acquired taste, and then no limits. Gazing down the Dali scope hole, notebook sketch of melting clocks. Man, come begins to seep through wall he licks his hand, pleasure, moan, come begins to fill his mouth, sticky, warm, crotch of lipstick birds, in sludge water, fuck muscle and vital, 
I was sure the LSD had worn off by now. But the problem with LSD is that it doesn't fully go away until you go to sleep. Let's go dark. Let's get freaky. 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 Fantasy is now the opiate.